Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Institute for Healthcare Improvement's Author in the Room conference call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session. Please note that this conference is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's call, Dr. David Shute. Dr. Shute is the Medical Director and Senior Consultant with Greenfield Health System in Portland. Greenfield is an innovative medical practice whose mission is delivery of superior clinical quality and patient service and spread of best practices through advocacy and teaching. Previously, Dr. Shute served as the Medical Director of Acumentra Health, the Oregon Quality Improvement Organization. There, Dr. Shute was, was responsible for oversight of all clinical activities and led the state's quality improvement activities. Dr. Shute, you may go ahead. Thank you very much. Greetings and welcome once again to Author in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. My name is Dr. Shute and I will be your moderator for today's call. We are delighted that you could join us today. As you know, Author in the Room calls are designed to translate new knowledge, what's been recently published in a JAMA article, into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Author in the Room occurs on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, with the next call being scheduled for August 15th. That article uh, will be Acute Emotional Stress and Cardiac Arrhythmias, published in today's issue of JAMA. Please join us. Several organizations have made Author in the Room a regular part of their learning experience, and we certainly encourage everyone to do so. Today, our featured authors are Drs. Bernard Cole, Ph.D., and Dr. Robert Sandler. Uh, having published Folic Acid for the Prevention of Colorectal Carcinoma, published in the June 6, 2007 article of JAMA. Uh, Dr. Cole is a professor of community and family medicine at Dartmouth Medical School. He received his Ph.D. in mathematics in 1992 from Boston University and in 1993 completed a postdoctoral fellowship in cancer biostatistics at Harvard School of Public Health. Uh, Dr. Cole spent 1993 through 97 at Brown University, where he focused on early phase clinical oncology research. In 1997, he moved to Dartmouth Medical School, where he expanded his focus to include cancer epidemiology and chemo prevention of colorectal cancer. In addition to these activities, Dr. Cole participates as a collaborating statistician with the International Breast Cancer Study Group and conducts methodological research in the area of quality of life evaluation. Dr. Robert Sandler, MD, PhD, is a Nina T. and John C. Sessions Distinguished Professor of Medicine and the Chief of the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine. He is also Professor of Epidemiology at the UNC School of Public Health. Since 1990, he has served as a Director of the Center for Gastrointestinal Biology and Disease, one of 17 digestive disease research core centers funded by the NIH. He is president-elect of the American Gastroenterological Association. Welcome, Drs. Cole and Dr. Sandler. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you're welcome. As the moderator, it's my job to help focus our discussion on the application of Dr. Cole and Dr. Sandler's research with the goal of driving performance improvement based on this article. The purpose of Author in the Room is for you to hear directly from the authors about research findings that can improve patient care and clinical practice. Together, our authors and I will help you translate what's in this paper into challenges applicable to your practice. Here's how the call will proceed. Our authors will spend about 10 minutes summarizing their findings. I will then take a few minutes to draw out some of the implications for real-world practice setting and set the stage for us to take your questions and comments. Uh, your questions and comments are incredibly important. This is a great form in which to get clarification on anything in the article itself by hearing directly from the authors and to contemplate with others on the call the significance of the findings and the steps you might take in using this information. Your participation, not just in terms of questions, but also offering your experience in this area will be very helpful. There are approximately 40 phone lines connected to the call today, generally with several individuals participating per line. Some members of the media may be present to, on today's call on a background-only basis. On another note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on the IHI and JAMA websites as streaming audio or podcasts. Complete details and instructions are available under the program section of IHI.org. Prior author in the room calls are available on those sites as well.
Now, let's get started. Again, let me uh, introduce Drs. Cole and Sandler, who will provide first an overview of the recent article. Uh, Dr. Cole? Thank you, Dr. Shute. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here, and I thank you and, and the participants for allowing me the opportunity to uh, to talk with you and uh, with Dr. Sandler about our research. Uh, let me start with some brief background. Um, many previous observational studies reported uh, inverse association between uh, folate intake and colorectal cancer risk. Uh, similar findings emerged uh, regarding large bowel adenomas. Uh, and there has also been supporting animal data. Uh, biologically, folate uh, is important for the transfer of methyl groups and may affect DNA methylation, which impacts gene expression and susceptibility of DNA to damage. And this led to the hypothesis that folate may be a chemopreventive agent for colorectal cancer. So in July 1994, based on this evidence, the previous observational evidence and the biologic evidence, uh, we launched a clinical trial, a randomized study, with the objective to evaluate aspirin and folic acid supplementation uh, for the prevention of colorectal adenomas. And in 2003, we completed the aspirin portion of this study and published those results. Uh, and this year in JAMA, we reported the effect of folic acid, which is the topic of today's program. Um, our study is a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial conducted in nine clinical centers in the U.S. and Canada, and participants were randomized in roughly equal numbers to one milligram per day of folic acid or uh, identical in appearance placebo, and participants were also randomized uh, <clears throat> to aspirin, which was 325 milligrams per day or 81 milligrams per day or placebo, uh, and this was actually a what we call a two-by-three factorial design. Uh, all patients had a uh, recent history of colorectal adenomas and agreed to avoid taking medications and supplements that contain NSAIDs uh, or folic acid. Uh, we conducted uh, two follow-up intervals, um, and the first was approximately three years in length, and uh, at that point, when that interval was completed, aspirin treatment was discontinued, and the participants underwent a colonoscopy. Uh, the second follow-up interval was an additional three to five years, and we continued the randomized folic acid treatment in patients who consented to that, particip that continued participation. And our primary study endpoint was the occurrence of one or more colorectal adenomas on follow-up, either at the three-year time point or the end of the second interval. And we also looked at some secondary endpoints, and these included adenoma multiplicity and the occurrence of advanced lesions, which we defined as tubulovillus adenomas, villus adenomas, uh, large adenomas at least one centimeter in diameter, as severe dysplasia or uh, invasive cancer. We had 1,021 participants uh, randomized in the study, uh, 516 allocated to folic acid and 505 allocated to placebo. And the average age was 57 years, males making up approximately 64% uh, of the sample. Uh, our JAMA report describes the data accumulated until October 1, 2004, and that's when all study treatment was discontinued. Uh, to cut to the chase, we overall found no benefit of folic acid for reducing adenoma risk. Uh, and in fact, our data seemed to suggest that supplementation may increase risk. Uh, to give you some specifics, uh, for the 987 participants who underwent a colonoscopy in the first interval, and I would note that this is a 97% follow-up uh, rate, uh, the incidence of one or more colorectal adenomas was 44% for folic acid and 42% for placebo, uh, and the unadjusted risk ratio was 1.04, and that's for folic acid relative to placebo, so slightly elevated risk in the folic acid group. Uh, advanced lesions uh, were 11% in folic acid and 9% in placebo, and that's a risk ratio of 1.32. Uh, neither of these risk ratios was statistically significant, however. Uh, again, we followed people through a second colonoscopic follow-up cycle, and that was 607 participants uh, in that follow-up interval. And about 83% of those continued their randomized folic acid treatment, and the remaining 17% were followed observationally. Uh, 
Uh, and in the second follow-up interval, colorectal adenoma incidence was 42% for folic acid and 37% for placebo, and that's a risk ratio of 1.13, also not statistically significant, but slightly elevated for folic acid. Uh, the incidence of at least one advanced lesion was 12% for folic acid and 7% for placebo, and this is a risk ratio of 1.67 uh, and a p-value of 0.05. We found that folic acid was associated with higher risks of having three or more adenomas, and the risk ratio there was 1.2 in the first follow-up interval and 2.32 in the second follow-up interval. Uh, that latter uh, uh, risk ratio having a p-value of 0 0.007, uh, and that was, in fact, the only statistically significant folic acid adenoma effect, and again, it uh, favored the placebo group. We observed higher rates of non-colorectal cancers in the folic acid group. There were 32 cases, or 6.3% in the placebo group, and 54 cases, or 10.5% in the folic acid group. And the, and the p-value comparing uh, those, uh, those rates was 0 0.02. Uh, I would uh, stress that that difference in uh, non-colorectal cancer was due mainly to an excess of prostate cancer, and there were 24 cases uh, in folic acid group and nine cases in placebo group uh, of prostate cancer. And we found no significant association between allocation of folic acid and risks of death, colorectal cancer, myocardial infarction, coronary uh, revascularization, or stroke. And we also found that there was no interactive effect between aspirin, uh, which was also a randomized component of our study, and folic acid. So in summary, we found that folic acid supplementation did not decrease the risk of adenoma occurrence among participants with a recent history of, of adenomas. Uh, indeed, there was a suggestion of an increase in risk with, with folic acid, which was quite surprising given the early observational uh, and animal data. Uh, however, this is in fact consistent with some more recent animal studies that uh, suggest that folate may have a dual effect on carcinogenesis, perhaps protecting normal mucosa but enhancing progression of early lesions. Uh, in, in view of the fortification of the food supply with folate, uh, we feel as a group of authors doing this research that uh, further research regarding the role of, of folate in the development uh, mm. and the progression of cancer uh, should, should have a high priority. Great, Dr. Cole. Thank you very much for that wonderful uh, uh, summarizing of the findings of the article. I want to turn now to Dr. Sandler and ask you to give us your thoughts on the implications of the findings, particularly as they apply to clinical practice. Dr. Sandler? Well, thank you. Um, I'm a practicing gastroenterologist, and my role in this call is to provide the clinical context, and also when we get to the question and answer period, if there are clinical questions, those are the ones that, that I'll answer. Uh, by way of background, the idea that we might be able to prevent cancer with a pill is very tantalizing. Those of you who are involved in patient care know that it's very difficult to get people to change their diet or to change their lifestyle or even to get screened. And if we could take a pill to prevent cancer, that would be a very neat thing. Uh, in addition, many people are already taking vitamins and supplements somewhere in excess of 50% of Americans are already doing that. So that provided strong motivation for us to evaluate folate. Folic acid was very attractive for a couple of reasons. First of all, as Chip noticed, noted, there's quite a lot of evidence from observational epidemiologic studies that folic acid might be effective. It's really cheap. And importantly, it was thought to be very safe. Folic acid is so safe that it's actually added to the food supply to prevent neural tube defects in pregnant women. So for all those reasons, this was a very attractive uh, project to embark on. Uh, what we found was surprising to us and quite disappointing. Uh, as you've heard, first of all, we found that folic acid was not effective in preventing precancerous polyps. And secondly, it wasn't completely safe. Uh, it increased the risk for polyps with some worrisome features, and it increased the risk of cancer, notably prostate cancer. N not a lot, but that was certainly not suggesting that the, the folic acid was completely safe. So I think there are probably two take-home messages from this. The first message is 
we need strong studies before making recommendations to people for treatments that might not be helpful and might possibly be harmful. And the second sort of hidden message, because the purpose of this call is to drive performance improvement, I think our patients may get the idea that if they take folic acid or they take aspirin or they take some uh, herbal supplement, they might prevent colon cancer when, in fact, there are proven ways that we can prevent colon cancer and we can do that with screening. And so if people are taking these agents and not getting screened, that's a problem. And those of us who are interested in preventing disease should try to use this as one more opportunity to convince people to get the screening that might actually prevent them from getting colon cancer. Great. Dr. Sanders, thank you very much for your comments. Now we want to turn uh, to talk really about what the research suggests is about the changes that we should make in our clinical practice, uh, basically changes that clinicians and other healthcare professionals uh, might consider to incorporate the uh, information in this article. Uh, so, you know, where do we begin if we want to turn these findings into better care? Um, I think this is an interesting article, quite frankly, to be selected at all for this call. And when I first looked at it, I was wondering to myself, why would JAMA and IHI uh, choose a publication that's basically a negative study? Uh, but on further consideration, and as I think you pointed out, Dr. Sandler, it's, it's extremely relevant, uh, both because of the rising interest in using supplements to prevent all kinds of medical conditions, including cancer, and the fact that uh, folate is present in so many supplements, including many multivitamins, and frankly, in our food supply. So I think this has huge implications both around folate per se uh, and about just the broader movement of looking to nutritional supplements to prevent or treat disease. And so for me as a primary care physician and internist, I'm really left um, with a number of questions. And, and one is simply how do I advise my patients who may already be taking folate um, or who want to talk about using supplements more generally. Uh, so with that, I think I'd like to uh, go ahead and turn to questions from our callers. Uh, your questions can include either how to use the information uh, that you've learned, how we can make actual improvements in the operations of our practice, and feel free to share whatever examples you may have uh, in terms of what you've already done with the new knowledge or what you're planning to do with it. So for now, let's go ahead to the phones and uh, invite questions from the callers. Thank you. We'll now begin the question and answer session. If you have a question, please press star then one on your touchtone phone. If you wish to be removed from the queue, please press the pound sign or the hash key. If you are using a speakerphone, you may need to pick up the handset first before pressing the numbers. Once again, if there are any questions, please press star then one on your touchtone phone. Well, great. Thank you. Are there any questions in the queue at this time? No questions or comments at this time. Great. Well, thank you. Well, I, you know, I'd like to begin by by responding to one of the findings in your study, in fact, that um, some of the participants in the folic acid arm, um, you know, actually had some worrisome findings. And I guess I'd like to ask for your speculation on do you really think that folic acid could be uh, a risk factor for colorectal carcinoma? Um, I guess that's a question for me. And um, I, the first question, I guess, is, why why was why were these polyps with worrisome findings more common in the folic acid group? There's some thought that perhaps folic acid might cause polyps to grow uh, and possibly degenerate into worrisome findings in cancer. Um, I, I don't think we have enough information right now to say that folic acid causes cancer, but I think on the grounds of this study, I think it's quite fair to say that there's pretty good evidence that folic acid doesn't prevent cancer. Um, if I could, I'd also like to respond to something that you said a minute ago about what do we tell our patients who are, who are taking folic acid by itself or taking folic acid as part of a supplement? Should they stop doing that? Is that dangerous? And I guess what I'd ask my patient is, why exactly they're taking folic acid in the first place. Uh, folic acid clearly has some benefits. If women are pregnant, it's important that take, they take folic acid supplements to prevent spina bifida and neural tube defects. But right now, I don't think we have very good evidence that folic acid is much good for anything else. For a long time, we thought that folic acid would prevent heart disease. 
Uh, and many cardiologists and many internists place people on folic acid to prevent heart disease. Recently, there have been some studies that suggest, in fact, that that doesn't work. So that's not a good motivation to take folic acid. And now we have evidence that preventing colon cancer isn't, uh, isn't a good reason to do it either. So I think that uh, people really need to, be question, need to question exactly what they're hoping to accomplish with the understanding that this study shows no evidence of benefit and possibly some evidence of risk. Great. Thank you. Uh, any other comments? Well, All right. It's important to uh, yeah. remember that our study uh, was conducted in, in individuals who had a history of uh, colorectal adenomas, so it's not the general population. Uh, and uh, it's possible that this idea that folic acid might uh, essentially feed microscopic disease could be especially important in that subgroup, the subgroup with a history of adenomas. Uh, adenomas are removed by the uh, uh, gastroenterologist, um, but microscopic lesions obviously can't be seen and, and may not be removed. Great point. So would you, would you caution us about extrapolating these findings to the general population? I would, yes. Yeah, great, great point. Thank you. Do we have any questions in the queue at this time? Once again, if you have any questions, please press star then one on your touchtone phone. Great. Okay. Well, thank you very much. And um, I think would would you uh, obviously we've we've expressed caution, um, and you certainly described that this population was patients who had had um, adenomas and, and the caution about generalizing this to the general population. What about patients that already have a diagnosis of colon cancer? Would you give them any stronger evidence or advice uh, based on the findings of the study? Uh, Dr. Sandler? Well, I guess my recommendation based on this study and some other studies is that people uh, not take folic acid because there is no good evidence that it prevents disease. I think people that have had colon cancer represent a pretty unique population because they have had colon cancer and survived, they're highly motivated. And we have good evidence that by um, doing screening in that population using colonoscopy, we can detect any polyps that might grow in, into cancer. So in, in both this high-risk population, the colon cancer survivors, and in the general population, I think a study like this provides an opportunity for us to talk to people about the screening that they could get for colon cancer. Great. Thank you. Maybe uh, we could just spend a second following up on that about um, the idea of possibly using aspirin yeah. uh, as a chemopreventive agent and or, or calcium. Uh, in that context. Go right ahead. This is Dr. Cole. Yeah, well, I was asking Dr. Sandler if he ah. could comment on that. Okay. He's in a better position. Uh, what you might recommend to patients if they're thinking about taking aspirin, which has been shown to prevent uh, colorectal adenomas or calcium. Right. Well, I think I'll start with aspirin. And um, as you heard at the beginning, this folic acid study was actually part of a larger study where we evaluated the use of aspirin and folic acid in the same study. And what we found in the aspirin study is something that's been found several different times, and that is the randomized control trial that we did showed that people who took aspirin were less likely to get recurrent adenomas, the presumption being that if we could prevent adenomas, we could prevent cancer. So based on our study and several other studies, I think there's very strong evidence that people who regularly take aspirin are less likely to get colorectal cancer. That's the good news. Now, just because it works doesn't mean that we ought to recommend it to people. And what we also know about aspirin is even though it's cheap, it's available over the counter, um, it's widely used, it's not completely safe. Even a baby aspirin, 81 milligrams of aspirin a day, is not completely safe. It can cause gastrointestinal bleeding, and it can cause hemorrhagic strokes. And in fact, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, which is an organization that makes evidence-based recommendations, has concluded that although aspirin is effective, because of the toxicity of aspirin, they don't recommend using aspirin in average-risk people. There are some people who would clearly benefit from aspirin. Those are people, for example, who have had previous myocardial infarction, people with diabetes, people at high risk for cardiovascular disease. And those people benefit because aspirin can prevent them from getting 
uh, cardiovascular uh, events. But I wouldn't recommend giving aspirin to people at average risk for colorectal cancer because of the toxicity and because the conscientious use of colonoscopy would be a different way and probably a better way to prevent them from getting um, colon cancer. Great. Well, thank you for those comments. And as long as we're talking about primary prevention of colon cancer, which I think is really the, the ultimate goal here, um, what else do you recommend, Dr. Sandler, uh, or what should we be advising our patients uh, about how to prevent colon cancer? Well, I think that probably the most important thing we should recommend to people is that they get screened. The, uh, the good news about colon cancer is that we have a number of different tests that we can use to prevent colon cancer, and those include fecal-called blood tests, which involves testing the bowel movement for, this, for signs of hidden blood that could indicate that there might be something serious going on. So we have fecal-called blood testing. We have flexible sigmoidoscopy, which is a, a limited examination of the colon, and we have colonoscopy. And, and the important message about those screening tests is all of them work. And uh, for patients who, for example, uh, don't want a colonoscopy, they could be encouraged to have Flexig or fecal cold blood testing. So I think by, by far the most important message we could give to people is that they get screened. Um, so, so I would start with that. Now, that's something that the doctor can do in conjunction with the patient. There's some things that the patient can do on their own to primarily prevent colon cancer. And I have about six different things that I recommend to my patients. The first is to uh, limit red meat and increase fruit and vegetable consumption. Uh, the second is to avoid obesity. Third, to engage in regular physical activity. And we're not sure that it has to necessarily be vigorous activity, moderate activity, walking, some sort of physical activity every day would be important. Uh, fourth, don't smoke and limit alcohol. Uh, the fifth is something that Dr. Cole mentioned, and that is calcium. Uh, we and other people have shown that calcium carbonate, 1,200 milligrams a day, probably with vitamin D, could decrease the risk of colon cancer, and it's very safe and it's good for the bones. And then the last thing I tell my patients is to try to avoid health claims that are based on weak data. In the popular press, on the Internet, it's possible to find all sorts of uh, wacky recommendations, and I think that people should wait for studies like the one that we just did before adopting a health practice that might actually be harmful. Now, if people were, were writing down those lifestyle changes, it's quite apparent that they're pretty sensible, they're relatively simple, and they have um, benefits that go beyond colon cancer. Those are the sort of things that we would use to prevent uh, heart disease uh, and bone disease as well. Yeah, I think that's an interesting observation you make, that all those are things that we would recommend for other reasons, uh, a myriad of different diseases that they present. So that's really, I guess, quite fortunate that there's such an overlap. And Dr. Sandler, is there good evidence behind all those primary prevention recommendations that you just cited? Well, some of the things that I've mentioned uh, are actually, have actually been tested in a randomized controlled trial. For example, our study group, the one that Dr. Cole and I are involved in, has done a study of calcium carbonate in a randomized controlled trial and found that people who took uh, calcium were about 20% less likely to get a recurrent adenoma. Currently, we're testing uh, both calcium and vitamin D. The evidence from vitamin D comes from observational studies, not randomized controlled trial. Uh, the other things that I mentioned about red meat, obesity, physical activity, um, are not ones that have been uh, tested in a randomized controlled trial, but I think uh, given the fact that they appear to be not only associated with colon cancer, but associated with heart disease, diabetes, and other medical conditions, they seem like sensible things that we could recommend to our patients. So those other recommendations are from epidemiologic studies? That's right. There's quite a lot of evidence, for instance, relating uh, obesity, particularly abdominal obesity and physical inactivity with colon cancer. And if we could get people to uh, avoid obesity and increase their physical activity, we could prevent a whole bunch of diseases, uh, heart disease, esophageal reflux, breast cancer, diabetes. Uh, that would be a good thing for people to do. Great. Thank you very much. Do we have any questions in the queue at this time? Once again, if you have a question, please press star and 1 on your touchtone phone. Well, great. Thank you. Well, I want to take off on something that you said, Dr. Sandler, which, which is certainly a challenge for me and I think a challenge for many physicians, is what do we do or how do we help 
not only how do we advise, but how do we help those patients that come in with something that they either are doing or want to do to improve their health that really isn't evidence-based. Uh, whether it's come in from something on the web, a recommendation from a friend, even perhaps a recommendation from another kind of health practitioner that we don't think is evidence-based. And actually, I want to ask uh, our listeners out there, uh, from your, expe- your experience and your work, how do you advise, how do you try to help those people, or how do you deal with them when they come in with something that they're doing that you think may not be harmful but clearly doesn't have an evidence base? What are the tricks you use to try to help those patients uh, make decisions based primarily on evidence? Uh, and while we're waiting for calls, uh, either Dr. Sandler or Dr. Cole, do you have any insights into how you manage that situation? Um, this, 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 is, this is Dr. Sandler, and what I first uh, tr- try to do is to um, congratulate people about taking steps that would possibly improve their health. Ah, uh, wonderful. Uh, and, and to sort of try to understand what, what they're trying to accomplish, and then um, to perhaps gently point out that there's reasons to think that uh, although an intervention may in fact be harmless, it, it might not be. And there uh, are probably uh, examples in, in, in our literature where something that looked like a good idea when we actually tested it, it turned, turned out to be dangerous. So I think if people uh, have an open mind, uh, I could, I'd try to get them to stick to some of the things where we have a larger evidence base. And, and quite honestly, uh, with the proliferation of electronic media and the internet, people are doing some incredibly crazy things. And and um, although uh, I don't discourage people from seeing alternate medicine practitioners, and I think those people actually do an excellent job with many of our patients, I I, I do think that uh, people need to understand that there are, are some practices for which we have a stronger evidence base than others. Right. Yeah. And I think there certainly are plenty of examples of things, even in our literature, uh, where at one point in time we thought they were safe and effective, uh, and with further information, uh, we actually realized things weren't helpful, um, with perhaps aspirin in certain populations being a great example of that. Well, good. Uh, Do we have any uh, comments uh, in the queue at this time? Yes, our first question comes from Herbert Ebner from Herbert Ebner and Associates. Please go ahead. Yeah, Great. I was just, uh, would you comment on, uh, we have wandering troops of minstrels that come to town occasionally, full-page ads on virtual colonoscopy. They say that, you know, you don't need a prescription from your physician to avail yourself of this service. Uh, and it's a stand-up procedure, and uh, it, it it cures all the uh, ails that beset mankind. Could you comment on virtual colonoscopy? And Herbert, do you have a specific question you'd like them to comment on? Well, as to its value. Uh, its value as a screening test. Yeah. Great. Okay. Hey, thank you very much. Thank you. So that's a fabulous uh, question, and. Um, Virtual colonoscopy is actually a CT a technique, and the way it's done is that the um, it, under the way it's currently practiced, people need to get their their colon cleaned out. So one of the people, one of the things that people dislike about standard colonoscopy is they have to drink a strong preparation to clean all the bowel movement out of their colon, and that's pretty un, unpleasant for a lot of people. It turns out that at present. The same thing is required for this CT or virtual colonoscopy. Um, so they need to be cleaned out, and then they go into an X-ray suite where uh, gas, usually carbon dioxide, is pumped into their colon, and then they go through a CT scanner. And very sophisticated software can actually reconstruct their colon so that the radiologist sees a picture that looks pretty much like what we see as gastroenterologists when we uh, negotiate our colonoscope through the colon. They call it flying through the colon. Uh, I've actually seen this, and they even, although it's an x-ray, they color it pink, so it actually looks like a colon. Um, The evidence on the sensitivity and specificity of virtual colonoscopy is somewhat mixed. Some of the studies in some hands suggest that the sensitivity rivals a colonoscopy. And in certain instances, uh, it permits the radiologist to look behind folds that might, in fact, be hidden for gastroenterologists. So in that sense, um, the, uh, as a non-invasive technique, it's pretty safe. Um, it, it may be valuable. 
So, so the problem um, or the unknown aspects of virtual colonoscopy are the following. First of all, um, at low levels of resolution, the radiologists don't report findings. For example, if they find a polyp that's less than six millimeters, they'll either not report it or they don't see it. And at present, we don't know the natural history for polyps that are less than six millimeters in size. So on one hand, we have gastroenterologists who take great pains to find every single small polyp. And on the other hand, we have the radiologists who say, well, if it's less than six millimeters, we're not really worried about it. And patients need to understand that small lesions might not be found. Um, so we don't really understand the natural history of small polyps, and we don't understand the true value of virtual colonoscopy in preventing colon cancer. The other thing to think about is that because it's a CT technique, you not only see the colon, but you see every other organ in the, in the abdomen. And not infrequently, other lesions are found, some of which are benign and can be ignored, some of which uh, probably don't mean anything but lead to additional expensive further evaluation so that although the test may not be uh, expensive, the follow-on tests that result from an abnormal CT colonography may, may be expensive. And the final thing to note is that at present, insurance companies don't pay for it, so it's an out-of-pocket expense for most of our patients. Now, if you ask me whether this procedure will supplant or replace colonoscopy in the future, I think there's reasons to think that it might. When it's perfected, when there's a large uh, group of radiologists who are able and willing to read this, uh, it might uh, relieve some of the burden for doing colonoscopy. But for right now, I think that we, it's not widely available enough and we don't know enough about it to wholeheartedly recommend it to our patients. That's kind of right. a long-winded answer. I don't know if I... Thank you very much. Did that address your question? Very much. Thank you. Wonderful. You know, I have a follow-up question. Is what about the safety of the virtual colonoscopy compared to the fiber optic colonoscopy, taking into account, of course, radiation dose, um, you know, versus the potential complications of the procedure uh, with a colonoscope? Right. So the risk for conventional colonoscopy is that we could uh, cause a perforation, uh, and we could cause bleeding if we re remove a polyp. Well, the purpose of the procedure is to remove the polyp, but there could be bleeding nonetheless. The, uh, in that respect, the virtual or the CT colonography is safer. Uh, the radiation dose is not high, but if there's an abnormality seen in a CT, patients need another CT, and so cumulatively they may begin to accumulate uh, enough radiation that it could be a problem. I think that most radiologists are not awfully worried about the radiation dose, but it's certainly something to think about. Great. All right. Well, thank you for your comments. Are there any more questions in the queue at this time? Once again, if anyone has a question, please press star then one on your touchtone phone. Well, great. Well, thank you. Well, Dr. Cole, we've been pretty easy on you, but I guess I want to throw a question your way. Um, you know, and that is stepping back a little bit more to the public health level, the public health point of view, um, the fact that folic acid is added to our diet. And, you know, is that something that is a significant risk? Is that a decision we should revisit? And to put that in the context of the fact that Great Britain right now is having the debate about uh, whether they should add folate supplementation to the food supply. Uh, so from your perspective, um, as a researcher, do you have any thoughts about that you can share with us? Well, in, in thinking about the... Um uh, fortification of the food supply. I mean, we, we thought about this when we uh, were analyzing our data, and in fact, when we were conducting the study in the middle of it, uh, we were uh, confronted with this. Um, and in fact, the study really kind of almost prematurely ended as a result of uh, folate fortification of the food supply. Um, we had applied for additional funding to to keep the supplementation going, the randomized supplementation, but uh, there were some concerns um, by the review committee of of our proposal that that the study was less uh, relevant, given that there was already fortif uh, fortification in the food supply, so that that might mute our ability to see a folic acid effect. So we definitely had to confront this during the course of our uh, study, 
And what we uh, uh, thought was um, that uh, the levels of uh, intake of folate that are expected to be delivered uh, with fortification are, are pretty small, really, uh, relative to even our dose, which was not by any means a, a high dose. Um, our dose was one milligram per day, uh, and roughly maybe a tenth that is expected to be delivered um, with the fortification of the of the food supply. So, uh, you know, it's unknown, but based on just the uh, the dosage, it, it would seem that this fortification of the food supply really shouldn't be a worry uh, for 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 the population uh, in terms of increasing cancer risk. But that's something we should look at. Uh, so, no cause for alarm at present, but certainly something that should be monitored. I think. <clears throat> Or perhaps even a topic for future study. I think there are. We're going to start seeing some um, more reports coming out. I mean, I think I don't know. I wouldn't say they're imminent, but I think that we'll we'll start seeing population-based studies that that look at trends in colon cancer, for instance, uh, over time, and, and looking at uh, whether the uh, risks have um, increased, perhaps somewhat after fortification of food supply, or if they have not. Uh, I think we'll start to see those those data. So we look forward to seeing that, in fact. Great. Thank you, Dr. Cole. Dr. Sandler, do you have anything to add? Well, I, I do. It's interesting. In our in our study, we actually had the opportunity to see the impact of fortification, sort of. And what we found was that we measured folic acid in blood, and in the placebo group, folic acid in blood went up about 30%, whereas in the supplement group, it went up 300%. So this um, is is what Dr. Cole mentioned, that the amount in the food supply is relatively low. People have asked me about that, and, and so what I say to them is that the foods that are supplemented are grains and cereals, and uh, actually there may be some other beneficial aspects of those food items that uh, are good for people, and people are probably actually better off eating supplemented foods and eating uh, potato chips and french fries and other sorts of fast food that might actually be harmful. So I'm not particularly concerned about um, the folic acid supplementation of the food supply until we have other studies that suggest that it might, in fact, be dangerous. And, and then the other thing I suggest to people, that people say, well, you know, I've been taking you know, multivitamins and uh, supplements, and I've been using folic acid. By doing that, what they've done is they've put all their eggs in, in one basket. They said, well, I think folic acid might be good for me and that's what I'll take. And perhaps a more sensible strategy would be to eat a variety of foods that naturally contain not only folic acid, but other B vitamins, minerals, uh, fiber, other things that might actually be beneficial. And by doing that, they have a better chance of improving their health than they would by simply eating a bad diet and taking a supplement. So there's no easy answer is what you're saying. I've got to improve my lifestyle if I want to be healthy. Well, I think people need to take charge, um, and people are looking for an easy way out. Well, I'll take an aspirin, or I'll take a folic acid pill, and that's all I need to do. And unfortunately, health isn't that simple. Yeah. Well, that's a great comment. That's a great comment. Any questions in the queue at this time? Any questions or comments, please press star then one on your touchtone phone. Great. Okay. Well, I want to turn to another, um, I thought, very interesting part of the article, and that was the observation um, that at least the colon cancer rate in the intervention group uh, was higher than that of the placebo, placebo group. Um, and I guess I'd invite uh, either of you to comment on that a little bit. I'm sorry, you mentioned the non-colorectal cancer? No, no pr prostate cancer, I'm prostate sorry. Cancer. Oh. Yeah, that there was a difference in the prostate cancer between the uh, the folic acid and the placebo group, and I guess I'd invite either of you to comment on that. Well, I can start with uh, um, just a brief comment on this. I, I uh, When analyzing the data, we did find an excess of prostate cancers in the uh, folate group, and, and again, uh, there were 24 cases uh, in folic acid and nine cases in placebo, and and that achieved a, a p-value of uh, 0.01, uh, and that really drove our observation that there were more non-colorectal cancers in the folic acid group, uh, so again, driven by prostate cancer. Um, this uh, was also seen in another randomized study, uh, 
a study of uh, folic acid um, uh, for uh, cardiovascular events, and uh, that showed a uh, um, a higher risk with uh, this study also involved B vitamins, so it wasn't a purely folate study, uh, and that risk was an increase of of 21% uh, for for prostate cancer. So we're not the only ones to see that. Uh, I should also comment that the other study showing this uh, elevation did not achieve a statistically significant result. Um, but uh, when you take that evidence together, there there is some suggestion uh, of an increase in risk. Um, of course, we always have to confront the possibility that these things could be um, somewhat spurious, given uh, that uh, we're looking at a lot of different endpoints, and statistically, when you do that, you increase your likelihood of a false positive finding, that is, that you see some effect that is just happenstance. Uh, and we can never really rule that out. So we just have we have to interpret those data with caution. Great, thank you, Dr. Cole. Any comments? Yeah, that was Dr. Cole. Um, this is Dr. Sandler. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Dr. Sandler. <laughs> so um, no, I, I'd echo that. I think that um, based on our study and the one other study, I think it's too soon to conclude that there's a signal. But I think it's something that we need to watch. And I think this finding in particular emphasizes the the point that I made early on, and that is that I think people uh, need to wait for for strong data before they adopt health practices that might turn out to be harmful. It would be unfortunate if people were taking a lot of folic acid to prevent cancer, and we found out in a few years that it actually caused cancer. Um, so uh, there is some risk that people will uh, start various health practices based on something they've read in the newspaper or online, and I, th- I think it's important that people wait. Yeah, great comment. So I'm I'm perplexed here as, as I look at all the forces that really are um, promoting various supplements, whether they be herbal supplements, nutritional supplements. Um, there seems to be both a great desire by patients to, to look for things they can do um, in that arena to improve their health. And I think from the uh, private commercial side, there certainly is a strong push to, to market these products to patients that are interested, interested in them. And so I, I guess I would ask sort of the broad question, with all these forces seeming to really encourage the use of these, um, uh, you know, these treatments, and yet what I'm hearing from our discussion is that really um, a balanced diet, uh, avoiding things that are known to be harmful or toxic, exercise, moderation, and weight may be the the most effective things to prevent a number of different uh, important conditions, including cancer and vascular disease. How do we as practitioners or how do we in the healthcare field really try and get that message out uh, in a way that's effective when there maybe isn't the marketing behind that and there maybe isn't the freshness or the newness that some of these other treatments prevent. So really, what are, are we to do as healthcare providers to really help get that message across? Well, I, I think it's a difficult problem for us as, as health providers because we're up against the powerful marketing forces of big business. And, and make no mistake, there's a lot of money at stake here. And, and um, these supplements are not particularly expensive to make, and they can be sold for quite a lot of money. And these marketing forces capture the attention of our of our patients. Um, it's uh, it's the same thing as the um, some of the restaurants that we would prefer our patients uh, not eat in. They have big budgets for advertising, and uh, it becomes very attractive. But I think that we'd simply have to try to patiently uh, and persistently explain to our patients that um, there are some healthy lifestyle choices they can make. They're not particularly sexy. They're not particularly outrageous. But until we have better evidence, I think people are better off spending their money on spinach than on a bunch of uh, expensive supplements. (laughs) Great. Great comments. Uh, Do we have any uh, last chance, any questions or comments in the queue at this time? Not at this time, but if anyone does have a question or a comment, please press star then one on your touchtone phone.
Great. Well, thank you very much. Well, this has been a, a very rich discussion, um, and I, uh, I'd like to maybe take this time now and invite, invite each of you, Dr. Cole and Dr. Sandler, uh, to just summarize a couple of uh, thoughts that you want to leave our listeners with. Uh, Dr. Cole? I, I would just, uh, I think, reiterate our uh, our findings again, and, and again, it was that folic acid supplementation did not decrease uh, the risk of adenoma occurrence, and and uh, so should not be used for that purpose, uh, particularly uh, in the context of people with a history of adenomas. Um, also, uh, it's important that we uh, try to develop uh, additional studies that could look at the role of of folate uh, in the development and the progression of cancer, uh, and that this should have a, a high priority, and that we should try to develop the uh, the good evidence that Dr. Sandler was referring to that would uh, help practitioners um, uh, in, in treating their patients and advising their patients on how to remain healthy. Uh, thank you very much. And Dr. Sandler? Well, my, my comment would be directed for many of the people who are on the call who are involved in healthcare quality and healthcare improvement. And I have a slight conflict of interest here because I'm a gastroenterologist, but I'm also passionate about preventing people from getting colon cancer. And when I see someone who's developed colon cancer, I feel as though there was a breakdown in the medical care system. So my my message, in addition to the one that Dr. Cole shared about the results of this specific study, are to, to make sure that people who are enrolled in your practices, enrolled in your plans, get screened for colon cancer. It's actually part of a number of healthcare report cards, and it doesn't necessarily have to be colonoscopy, which is the test that I recommend because I'm a gastroenterologist. Fecal cult blood testing, sigmoidoscopy, immune testing, and stool colonoscopy, they all work, and we should use encounters with our patients to make sure that they're up to date on screening so that they don't get colon cancer. Great comment, and that I think does present a challenge for all of us. Uh, you know, I think the primary burden for that, although the screening is done by gastroenterologists most of the time, I think the real burden for tracking that, uh, making, the, giving advice, and making the referrals really falls on primary care practitioners. Um, and you know, clearly the systems to support that, things like registries, uh, electronic medical records that can track and offer us reminders are tremendously valuable for that. And I look forward to seeing the growth of electronic information management tools uh, to make that easier for us to do as primary care physicians uh, and to really make that service more reliable. So well, I want to, again, thank both of our authors, Dr. Cole and Dr. Sandler, for their participation on today's call and for uh, participating in such an enlightening discussion. Uh, and again, I want to remind the audience that Author in the Room is a monthly program that takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m. 2 Eastern Time. And again, our next uh, topic sounds absolutely fascinating, Acute Emotional Stress and Cardiac Arrhythmias uh, by uh, Dr. Ziegel Stein, and that, will, that call will be um, on the 15th of August. Author in the Room is uh, sponsored by both the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Uh, it's an interactive conference call uh, designed to help accelerate changes and improve clinical care. Thanks again to all of you for being part of Author in the Room, and have a good day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This concludes today's conference. Thank you for participating. You may all disconnect.